Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and today I speak with Seven Sager John, who scored a 170 on his June 2021 LSAT. This was up from his diagnostic of 152 and his two previous official LSAT scores of 161 and 166. All in all, his LSAT prep took a bit over two years. I have Seven Sager John here with me. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, JY. Uh, John, so why don't we begin by having you just tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? Are you still in college? Are you working? Yeah, for sure. So I'm originally from Northeast Wisconsin. I attended college at the uh, kind of the flagship. So I, I went to UW-Madison. I'll just say it. I figured I'd say Midwest originally, but I'm proud to be a Badger. So, um, <laughs> no humble Badgers? Yeah. I originally got interested in law probably in like high school. There's plenty of people who I know go with their written statement and talk about how they've been interested in law forever. And so originally, I think I envisioned myself as a KJD and started studying for the LSAT during my junior year in the winter specifically. I was under the impression that this was going to be like any other test where I could study for two to three months and just be fine because that was kind of the conventional wisdom that had been passed down to me. I took a course through kind of one of the big name kind of big box test prep companies because my oldest brother, who's a corporate attorney, had done that. And he's been successful in his career. He also went to Wisconsin for law school. I kind of had a different vision for myself. And so I was not super happy with the end product of it. I was kind of the typical burning through a lot of PTs, just like seeing a bunch of questions, doing all the things you shouldn't do when you're prepping. And at the end of that experience, at the end of that class, I actually ran into Seven Sage because I did that infamous virus game. Uh huh. I just got depleted by it, had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> right. And, and I think a lot of people that prepare for this test for a long time run into that game and have the same difficulty. But I Google searched it and I came across Seven Sage and found one of your videos, JY, of you doing that game specifically. And I thought, wow, this is like a great resource. And then all of a sudden I realized that. At the time, all the games had still been free then. Oh, yes. The good old days. The, the, the complications. Yes. Back when Logic Games were still on YouTube, still free. Yeah, back when Logic Games were on YouTube. And I found it and I just loved it. And I decided after I took it, after like two and a half, three months of studying, I got a 161. And pretty much everyone that was in my corner said, listen, if games are the thing that are holding you back, then you should probably take it again. So when I came back to studying after my senior year of college, because I've heard that, you know, you only get one chance at a GPA, you get multiple chances at the LSAT. So I just kind of wanted to protect my GPA and kind of play defense. <laughs> so afterwards, I decided to go with Seven Sage for working through core curriculum to kind of get the rust off and then uh, really just drilling games repeatedly because I feel like naturally logical reasoning was something I liked off the bat. And so making some progress there wasn't necessarily difficult. And reading comp, I think everyone comes in at varying levels. And so I had a lot of variability in the section, but could occasionally pull off some pretty good scores with it. But games, I was just like minus 10 consistently, even after the course that was supposed to make me so much better at them. So that's why Seven Sage just became like, you know, just like my savior. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. That's 161. I think this was back in April of 2019. Yeah. Right. 
And that was your first official LSAT score. Yeah, I jokingly tell people at the time that I took the first take, I could grow essentially no facial hair. Um, and I think that's why I had the uh, the username Burt Reynolds, because I was just so envious of that handlebar mustache, yes. you know. And now it, it comes in far more full. So it's been a, a long time You're coming. You're an old man now. <laughs> yeah, the LSAT will age. Yeah, but all in all, I think you mentioned with some time off, it took you two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 161 was your first official score. And your most recent and final, I think, official score was June 2021, the flex testing. You got a 170 on that. Yes, it was the last administration of a flex, even though the format's pretty much the same because now it's just the three greatest right. sections. Yeah, it was the last uh, right. flex. Right. Congratulations. How does that feel? Still a little bit surreal. I knew it was definitely possible. When I started first studying for this, like back in 2019, I thought to myself, just very arbitrarily, like, oh, yeah, 167 would be like a great score to get. And when I took the test, so the second official score I got was a 166. And so I barely missed that cutoff. If I would have gotten like a 167 or a little bit higher, I probably would have thought maybe it's time to cut myself off, move on with my life, actually probably be a better employee than I currently am. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I didn't, and I'm super glad I didn't because it forced me kind of to reevaluate the way I was preparing. And to get the 170 was extremely gratifying because it, while it is definitely abstract, I think people make a bigger deal out of like a 170 than a 169 for whatever reason. It still hasn't totally set wow. in. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about that, that last four point improvement. It is super hard. Those four points are harder to get. But Before we get to that, how did you know, I'm curious, how did you know when you started that the high 160s or even a 170 was within reach? Was it because your brother got it and you just like, I'm smarter than that guy? Like, obviously. Yeah. So I think my sibling, I might out him on this. I think he was like a 164 or 165. And I'm a very competitive person. So I have four older brothers, but he's the only one that's gone the law school route. And so I wasn't going to be beaten by him. (laughs) (laughs) But on top of that, it was really because looking at how my practice tests would break down, the really consistent thing early on, even when I was scoring in the low 160s, was like logic games just was killing me. Yeah. What were you missing on the LR and RC sections? You know, I had quite a bit of variability in reading comps, so I could go anywhere in between like a minus three or like maybe a minus seven or eight. And then with logical reasoning, occasionally I would go like minus two, but usually somewhere more like four. Oh, wow. That's really good to just right off the bat. Yeah. I I don't know why. I just kind of like arguments and (laughs) (laughs) that's what the section is. Yeah. And so I always, something about it always kind of connected a little bit more with me because I love to read and write and... I think, especially in that style, it's a lot of what lawyers do, right? Like deconstructing arguments, making inferences. In college, were you a philosophy major? (laughs) Actually, the exact opposite. So everyone I think would have pegged me in high school as a guy that was going to go into liberal arts. I ended up going into business. So I am (laughs) actually, I work in finance now. Um, I studied finance, real estate, and risk management in undergrad, mostly just because I found some of it interesting, but I wanted to diversify myself because... I had a feeling I was going to want to do the law school route, and I knew there's, I know there's a lot of poli sci and philosophy majors, and I've heard philosophy is like, true. I took one class in it because I had to, 
Actually, I took two classes. One of them was just optional and it was an introductory logic course. And I oh, loved it. yeah. And then another one was ethics. And I also loved that class. And I was like, I got to stop right here because otherwise I might end up <laughs> being a, having a useless philosophy major. <laughs> I mean, definitely useful as far as uh, useful for prepping for the LSAT. Yeah, prepping for the LSAT. And I've heard in law school, it can definitely be helpful. As far as having a few gap years here, maybe not so much. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I always thought, I studied philosophy in undergrad. I always thought that was one of the reasons why LSAT. I always thought the philosophy classes were super applicable to the LSAT. That's why I guess that maybe you, you also study philosophy. But yeah. Okay, so logic games were your weakness. Let's talk about how you improved your logic games, and then let's talk about how you managed to get those final couple of points to get to 170. For sure. I went back through the core curriculum. I had foolproofed the games in the core curriculum. And so that took probably about three months. And I started taking PTs. And I think my first one back was like a 165. I was like, okay, my goal scores are in reach. And then like the second or third one back, I got a 172. And it was because Logic Games finally kind of like clicked into place. The next text back, I got like a 163. And so what it told me was Logic Games still, there's a ton of variability. So that 163 versus that one high 160 score completely explained by logic games. You did well in LG, you didn't do well in LG, and that explains the variation. It was really like the first time everything had lined uh -huh. up. I kind of describe the LSAT sometimes as whack-a-mole, yes. right? Like sometimes you get logic <laughs> games under control, and then reading comp pops up, and then you try and get reading comp under control, and then LR all of a sudden becomes an issue. And it makes sense too, because you're investing time when you're studying. And so time you spend intensely focusing on games, for example, isn't time you're spending working on your form and reading comp. And so that was the first test where it all kind of naturally came together. And then the next test back, I just got drilled in reading comp and in, uh, in games. And really, it highlighted kind of what the difference was for me. And it was just kind of being consistent with these sections. I had foolproofed some games, actually, after the first 161 take, I would wake up before I had an internship that summer and I would take like one section of games and then the next few days I would just drill and drill and drill. And so I was getting better at them. But what I ended up doing was taking probably like two or three weeks and like all I did was games. And I would organize by like game type because at this point I'd seen a lot of the one through 35. So sequencing, sequencing with a conditional grouping, I would just take a day and I would kind of follow... <laughs> I'm sure so many people have brought him up, but Pacifico's method where I have this huge Excel file. I, you know, mention what the game is, like the, the rating of the game, what the target time is, if I hit it, and then I would come back to it occasionally. And that was really, first and foremost, doing that for like half a day, because at this point I'm working kind of half days with my real estate law professor, which was an awesome gig and helped me realize that I definitely do want to go the law school path. But then doing games for like, let's say three hours, you're just fried after it. But once you come back to it in a PT, if you take a little bit of time to kind of, you know, be rejuvenated, you can definitely tell the difference. And then there became a point where I realized some of the variability was just that I was so nervous in the sections because I'd invested so much time and energy into this like one, just this one section of this one test, right? That's when I had to start working on form and section strategy. And that became completely different. The first time I took the test, it was paper and pencil, which again, I think dates me as a person a little bit because yeah, it, does. it feels like it's been a long time since paper and pencil. 
so I used to be able to like touch every word with my pencil, right? Like uh, how Seven Sage used to kind of teach it. I realized when I was getting questions wrong in section, I was misreading a rule almost always because my mind would just fill in the gap. And the thing is, this whole test is just reading comprehension. It's reading comprehension in obviously RC, but it is an LR and logic game specifically too. I mean, like the whole game can turn on like four or five words. So I would force myself to put my finger on the screen and touch every word to make sure that my mind wasn't jumping the gap at any point. Because even, you know, late in my prep, when I was scoring low to mid 170s consistently, I realized that if I was getting anything wrong in games, it was almost always because I just misread a rule at one point or another. And so... For me, it was about making sure that I was reading every word. And then on top of it, kind of to negate some of those nerves, I would read the first game. I would kind of peek ahead a little bit. Then I would read the second game. And then I would determine, okay, which one do I want to tackle first? And it would kind of help me build confidence. I would do the same thing with games three and four. And frankly, that on top of like those days of just full on games and foolproofing was how I really kind of turned the corner where I was consistently then minus one or minus zero. Yeah. Okay. So really important to first be able to even hit that target performance of minus zero to minus two, but that's not enough. Once you hit it, you have to consistently hit it. And then that becomes a lot about like self-knowledge about psychology, because I think that first goal is more just, you got to know logic, you got to make inferences, you got to recognize patterns, you got to just foolproof and drill and drill and drill, and you get all that comfortable. But to be consistent about it, a lot of that is about strategy. It's about methodology. It's about, like I said, you know, knowing yourself and how to calm your nerves. So two things that you said I want to touch on, first being just making physical contact with the words. (laughs) <laughs> um, it is a lot hard. I mean, you know, it's it's not a physical test anymore. It's a digital test, but they haven't released a new test in a while. But the last time they did, it was digital. And yeah, I mean, my cursor is on the screen touching each word. Or if I'm doing this on like an iPad or something, I have that stylus, that pencil, making contact with the word on the screen because it's just how I prevent reading errors. You know, <laughs> like when you are in a situation where precise reading is so important. I mean, I'm sure there are other ways to do it, but that's one way that for me works and for you works and for a bunch of other people work as well. So it's really good to hear you say that. And the other thing I wanted to touch upon was the strategy of reading games one and two and then deciding which one to do first, and then doing the same for three and four and deciding which one to do first. I haven't heard that one before. I'm curious, have you ever decided to do game two first or game four first? (laughs) Yeah, so it's definitely happened. And I'd say it's only backfired probably on one PT, where you like just misjudge a game as oh, you know, it's a straightforward sequencing. And then there's just a really difficult conditional rule or something and you end up sinking some time. But I just decided I had to have a sense of order. You needed to know what's lurking out there, like what you haven't seen yet. Right. I'll I'll tell you, I have this irrational fear on all of my practice or on all of my like real tests that I was going to have a circle game. I don't know why. (laughs) And and I had foolproofed that picnic table game. I've done probably 25 (laughs) times. I'm not joking. And I always was afraid that it was right around the corner. And so maybe that's part of it. But for me, it was mostly like, okay, I have 35 minutes to do these four games. I know that the first two games, the hardest difficulty one of them is going to be is likely in the modern LSATs, it's going to be like maybe a two or three star game, right? So for me, it shouldn't matter if I do the first game or the second game. What I want to do in the moment 
is, you know, I would like to usually start with sequencing for some reason instead of grouping. That was just a personal preference. But when I would do that and I would crack it right away, because I think a lot of times the first two games, there's usually a pretty standard split, not always. And so if I would see it early, it would be like uh, my friends and I always used to talk about seeing your first shot go in in basketball or like seeing your first catch come in in football or just probably getting your first few lines right in theater, things like that. It always just kind of helped me acclimate and kind of feel in the groove of things. And so I pretty frequently would start with game two, then go back to game one. I will say the game fours more often than not are the hardest in the set. So usually I'd still stay on game three, but it was nice to know it was around the corner, right? Because if I had, let's say, 18 minutes on those last two games, I then knew kind of, okay, if I'm at like the 10 minute mark in game three, I might not be in the best shape for game four. Right. But yeah, I had read a lot on the form a lot of different people's kind of strategies and logic games. And it was a lot of the same great conventional wisdom. But in order to kind of get kind of control of my mental state and just settle in, I just kind of developed this weird method that worked for me. And a lot of, I think, studying just comes down to that. It's figuring out what works for you, right? Like some people like to study for this test at night. I've honestly, I've tried and it's far more difficult for me. I want to make sure my best few hours, which are usually in the morning, were spent on LSAT before, you know, I had classes or work or whatever it was. It's just a lot of these come down to, I think, personal preference. But for games, for some reason, that's just what worked for me. That makes sense. I mean, so much of the test is just psychology right? So much of it is just Mm -hmm. like what a lot of like idiosyncratic things that help you feel confident, help you feel, help you feel like you can perform the way that you know you can perform because you've done it in practice. Right. I will say that a lot of it too was after I'd taken this test once or twice, I realized just how big of a gap there was in between once you get habituated to practice tests and then actual the day of right? Like your, your nerves definitely jump. I actually had reached out to a few people like on seven stage, just about the first like five minutes of your real test in, I feel like I would just come in like guns a blazing. And that's really where having strategy was really helpful because I just had kind of too much to do to worry about, oh, this is the real thing. I've been studying for X amount of months preparing for this 35 minute interval. Right. So much is on the line. Right. And you really nailed it when you said that a lot of this is psychology. You get to a point where if you're blind reviewing very high up, we're saying like 177 to 180 consistently, you're scoring in your range that you want or higher than that range. All it comes down to then is your execution. And that is where I think people can slip a little bit because the test is different the day of than any practice test you've seen. And that's kind of one of the unique things about the LSAT in general compared to other standardized exams. It's like you have an idea of the concepts that are going to show up, but you can't be confident. And so making sure that you're in that right mental space, I like to meditate. I know there's a lot of people on Seven Sage that are very pro meditation. I am also in that camp. But just making sure that you're taking care of yourself is going into the test, I feel is like bigger than anything else. For sure. For sure. Let's get a little bit more granular about your actual test day, the June flex test where you got a 170. Do you know if you missed any questions on the game section? I would be confident in saying I probably missed one max two. So it was a relatively normal section. 
the first two games, I always know they go well if I can't remember what they were. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I think I ended up having just like a few game boards for each. So ended up probably with like 20 minutes going into the last two games. And then the third one was like a sequencing with some repetition in it, which was a little unusual, totally manageable. Got to the last game with probably like nine or 10 minutes left. And there was one question where I had split it into four game boards. And I honestly thought maybe I should have done it. Maybe I should have just brute forced. It would have been fine. There was one that was like, which of the following will give you pretty much the entire setup. Oh, the substitution replacement question? No. So (laughs) where it's like, if you put X into three, for example, the whole thing will be solved. Oh, 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 which one of, oh, I see, I see. Which one of the following, if true, determines all of the game pieces and their assignments? Yeah, it's the, the complete determination questions. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I got to one of those and I realized out of these four game boards, at one point I had just misapplied something just slightly and I ended up spending more time on it than I'm willing to admit. And I have a feeling I still, I wasn't totally confident on that, but felt, you know, decent about games. It's funny though. I felt worse about games on that 170 than I did on the 166 in January. I knew I had drilled the games in January. Like it was probably the most confident I've ever been in a game section because the two difficult games were actually kind of repeats of a few games that showed up in one through 35, which I'd foolproofed. So I was feeling good about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think overall, I probably finished with like, you know, that's the tough part about flex was there was only one test that was disclosed, but I'm fairly confident I was probably a minus one. Okay. Yeah. That sounds good. Did you feel like you had to implement some kind of skipping strategy for games, not at the game level, but at the question level? Yeah. So I would always pretty much go out of my way to make sure that a lot of people say, the hypothetical situations, right? So if like Q's in three, you should take those, I think it's reference questions. I can't remember specifically what language people use regarding it, but I would typically go to those first. Right. The ones that give you additional premises, additional rules, basically. Like for question three, Q has to be in four. Yeah. I would typically skip around to those. And also I think when you see straight could be trues or must be trues, if you have the boards right, you can almost anticipate exactly what they're going to (laughs) be. So typically, I wouldn't have to skip around too much. But if it was something that was rules driven, a rules based game, I should say, that's where I'd start skipping around a little bit. And that's where kind of you can start to flush out some of the inferences that aren't obvious at the get go, I guess. Right, right. So I would typically skip around only if I hadn't cracked a game. Gotcha. Otherwise, I would go straight through. I'd also say one thing that I noticed during prep that I feel like I didn't see a lot of discussion about ever is that if there's a substitution question at the end of a game, I think there's almost always a split up front because that's typically how I would... If I peeked ahead far enough and I was thinking like, maybe I should split, maybe I shouldn't, and the last question was substitution, I would always know to split because usually you can break it into like three or four worlds. And then you have all these hypothetical substitution rules. And if it's not obvious, you can just see if there's now a new board that exists or a board that just got knocked out. And so I personally like to skip a little bit if I felt that there was going to be a split that might take a bunch of time, but there was also a substitution at the end, I would then go for the split. Otherwise, I would just kind of brute force if needed. Right. Wow, that's, that's interesting. I haven't uh, ever looked at the games with through that frame. But for the substitution equivalence type questions, 
Do you typically find those to be pretty straightforward, or do you sometimes do get caught in a time sink with those questions? Yeah. So typically, I think they're usually pretty straightforward because I I tend to split whenever I possibly can. So then, once you see the rules, you can kind of just fit them in, and you get a feel for them eventually if you do enough of them. But if it's taking over a minute, like I'll skip it and、I、come、see. back to、I、it.、See. I got to a place where I would usually finish a section with like five minutes left, so I could just come back. And that's the nice thing about games is like you can come back to questions, and usually it's still fresh enough in your mind that there's nothing too crazy going on. Versus like reading comp, I could never skip between passages. Like that just oh really? That just <laughs> that couldn't、uh, happen. Yeah. Okay. So for those substitution equivalent questions, sounds like you tend to apply because of the way that you approach them. The fact that you split, you tend to split your game boards into sub game boards. It sounds like you approach those questions with process of elimination, right? Checking to see which boards、yes. already are present and using those boards to eliminate some of the answers. Have you had these encounters of where you look at an answer and it just you just it's almost like there's a proof in your head that you see that oh this must be the right answer because this answer choice is implied by the original rule and this answer choice also implies the so it's 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 a biconditional right it's implied by and it implies the original rule. That's exactly what I was going to mention. If there's a biconditional that they're looking to replace, or if there's an inference off of a biconditional, usually you know you can draw the arrow the other way, right? So there are times where you could anticipate the right answer, and you kind of do have that geometric proof in your head. This has to be the case. More times than not, for me personally, I wasn't able to anticipate necessarily the right answer choice there. What I was able to do is just quickly eliminate, just because I would have kind of the proof of everything that could exist right in front of my face. I mean, that's the beauty of splitting, right? You see all of the worlds that can exist. It's also the danger because sometimes you know you do the CDs game and you might try and. Do some kind of split, or try and see how the worlds play out, and there's like 800 <laughs>、right. of them. So that's that's a rule-driven game. You got to do it the other yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, same here. If I am able to perceive that an answer choice is the right answer, I feel very lucky because most of the time it's not the case. I have to just、I、have to eliminate, and that's just a time-intensive process. And you kind of have to admire LSAC for adding those questions because they know they must know how much time people spend yeah. on them. Yeah. Oh, for sure. They're just brutal, <laughs> newish to the to the LSAT, right?、Mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, I think it's because people just started doing way better on games. They still need to maintain their curve, so they needed to ask some curve breaker questions, and those are really tough curve breaker questions. Yeah, there's occasionally ones that just are so not obvious that I think the only way you can do is process of elimination, and those are the curve breaker, right? How in LR there might be somewhere between eighteen and twenty three. There's going to be one or two that are just. They feel impossible when you're reading them. Like just parsing the language is like terrible. But with games, you have to kind of invent new ways to test information, and I think that's it. Yeah. Did you encounter the dreaded circular games? <laughs> Not on my real test. <laughs>、okay. No. There was a few games that were slightly unusual, but I really do think if you foolproof one through thirty-five. You're pretty much going to see all of the miscellaneous weird things you can possibly see. I mean, that's what those early tests are really great for: is just seeing all the unusual quirks that they can throw on a sequencing or a grouping. But no, my worst nightmare of running into a circle game didn't come true. And looking back on it in retrospect, you kind of hope for a harder game section because that's kind of how you can distinguish yourself, right? So 
when I had what I thought was an easier game section for that 170 take, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be a much tighter mm, curve, yeah. right? So, <laughs> yeah, but I guess you, you, you don't know, right? Because they don't, they don't release the information. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, they don't even release a yeah. number, right? Like they don't release like, hey, it was minus right. seven for a 170, right. which I think I was probably either a minus six or a minus seven, just based off of kind of the difficulty of the test. I felt like I'd taken almost all the modern LSATs. So usually you can kind of have a feel for how it's going to break down. But yeah, I mean, it's just kind of guesswork at that point. I mean, it also helps if you, I remember when I was studying for the test, I would try to guess at what my scale score was before I did my blind review and before I actually checked it. And then I, my takeaway from that was that I just, my prediction skills were awful. So, <laughs> so basically how I felt about the test had no correlation to the actual performance. But anyway, I have heard that some students are pretty, they're pretty good at figuring out what they got. But anyway, so that's the games. I want to ask you about between your 166 January flex score and your 170 June flex score. In April, you had a post on our forums where you asked for some advice about a study slump. You said that you had only a few PTs left, you want to make them count, but you're kind of finding yourself a bit like burnt out, maybe, maybe not so severe, but just kind of, you know, less excited about about studying for this. Can you talk more about that and what kind of advice you got and how you eventually got over that? Yeah, so I got to kind of figure out what that slump was all about. I took the flex in January and I knew I underperformed badly on LR and reading comp. And that took a long time to kind of parse and figure out why that was the case. But eventually I figured out that I just didn't really have any strategy. I kind of came into LR a little bit arrogant, in my opinion. I didn't see a point in skipping because typically I was like a minus three or four worst case scenario, a minus one or two. And so once the real pressure and the real clock is set, I think I just, I felt illiterate. And I know I've heard other people describe this where you just cannot put things together, right? Sammy said that. Yes, I've heard her podcast say that exactly. She can't read, yeah. I feel that too. Sometimes I go into a fresh section, the first question, I have to read the stimulus like three times before I understand what I'm reading. Yeah, so on my LR, this is (laughs) kind of besides the point, but on that 166 take, I had a PSA question, the second one in. And PSA drives me crazy because there's just usually a little room for a gap, right? Just like a little one. And I'm a perfectionist, so it just drives me nuts. (laughs) So there's this PSA question about some newspaper, and I am almost positive to this day I got it correct. The issue with it is that I probably spent three minutes on it the first time I looked at it. I got to question 12. It was driving me crazy. I went back to it. Oh, no. And so I probably wasted like seven (sighs) minutes on some two-star question that I got correct. And I ended up having to guess. I never, it was never the case that I wouldn't finish LR in time. Usually I might even have a little bit of time even before I started my skipping strategy. And... I had to just randomly guess on a must-be-true question, and that's when I knew I kind of shot myself on the foot in that test. And I also had the same feeling of being illiterate on reading comp, which we can get into later. But that was all just kind of from a lack of strategy. And so when I came out of that test, I realized I had to stay positive because I come out of every PT thinking I did terribly. That's not always the case, right? But eventually I got that score back. And if you've seen the movie Goodfellas, I felt like... There's this scene where Robert De Niro finds out one of his you know, best friends has just gotten whacked and he's just going nuts like he can't believe it. 
And that's how I felt when I got that 166. Like, I just could not believe that I'd probably seen from my last PT to the real test, I had like a 10 point drop, right? right? And it was just, it was hard to swallow. I hadn't had a PT under a 170 in like two months. And so I just really struggled with kind of getting back into studying and looking at it from a fresh perspective. And then I think my fear also, one of the things that kind of made me underperform in January is I put a lot of pressure on that test because I was going to start going from part-time work to like a full-time career in February. And so I didn't want to study and then work full-time. I just thought I was going to be burnt out all the time. And I ended up in those first few months, I work in finance, but my specific role is actually within a tax organization and the hours aren't necessarily great. And there's a lot of training that goes on, especially in those first two months. And it's just like your head spinning constantly. Yeah, I was just burnt out. I just hit a slump and I went from like consistently scoring in the 170s. I got that 166 test. My girlfriend and I talked it through as far as like, I wasn't going to tell anyone if I was studying again, which is another piece of advice I've heard, from Sammy. Um, which was, from yeah, Sammy. I heard yeah. that on her podcast and I actually had read it in a book oh, really? like a week <laughs> earlier about pressure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were like, no, don't tell anyone. You don't have to broadcast every element of your life, which I think is actually a good call because even I like, I have super supportive friends and family, but when I tell them those things, those are just more people who are now privy to that information and want to check in. They're going to be like, hey, how did that test go? I had to tell everyone that I got a score that I felt was underachieving. It didn't feel great. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're by nature a sharer. Might be a good, good piece of advice. Don't have to share everything. Yeah, you don't have to share everything. I'm, I'm relatively extroverted and I think Typically, the reason I'd end up sharing this with people is if they text me or call me, I wouldn't pick up because I was either working or studying. So, you know, a lot of people end up knowing. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I kept it quiet. I probably wouldn't have even told my girlfriend, but at that point, we're pretty much living together. So she's got (laughs) to know. (laughs) But she was very supportive and very thankful for it. But yeah, so... That was what I did differently. But as far as my prep went, I just kind of went back into PTs like just as before. I figured I should take the April test. It's the next one up. And there's no reason why I shouldn't just perform higher than how I underachieved, right? If I scored that 166, but realistically was scoring in the 177s or the 170s, I should score better if I just take it again. No. And so my PT score started to dip. I wasn't maybe honestly was just pushing myself too hard with a new career path and then studying on top of it and not taking off enough time to just kind of recharge and then feel fresh about it. But I will say one of the things that really kind of changed for me was one, I started getting different strategies in logical reasoning and reading comp, which I know I underperformed for the January test. Two, I would just take off like Saturdays and then take practice tests on Sundays versus I was studying both days before. And I think for me personally, I needed at least one day where I wasn't staring at screens for either studying or work just constantly. And so having that time to kind of get recharged was great. And then also the farther in I got with work, the more I realized I actually just liked the LSAT. I liked reading about dinosaurs in LR. Like it was... uh, 
there's certain topics like I've learned so much about wild salmon versus farm <laughs> farm fed salmon just from this test. And it's fun just because you get all these diversity of topics and opinions and some really bad arguments and you get to handle them like that. And so kind of just in a weird way, the worse work got, the better the LSAT felt. <laughs> And so that's kind of what broke the slump ultimately for me was, was just kind of taking a little time back to just kind of see, should I push the April test or not? I decided, you know, I wasn't getting my PTs the way I wanted to. I hadn't really changed my approach. And I think that wasn't probably honest to how I just finished in January, really just trying to get a fresh perspective on all of it. Yeah. No, I I think um, taking time off is so important and so underrated. Yeah, and I'm so bad at it. (laughs) It's like, you know, there are a lot of things where time is a necessary element. There is no rushing. I mean, it's like if you plant something, you just need to plant it, care for it, and then you just wait. And then there's nothing for you to do. Just wait, right? That's it. Time is a necessary and irreplaceable element. And I think it's very similar for studying and learning new skills and learning new material. Like you drill RC, LR, L, whatever it is, you drill until your mind is mush. And then what? And then you just have to rest and wait and let all this information marinate, let all the new connections in your mind form and rejuvenate, right? Like there's no replacement for that. Right. Because something like conditional reasoning, for example, it's a skill, I would say more than it's just knowledge. And I think with a lot of classes in college, at least for me, it was like, okay, a lot of this is knowledge based. I can memorize a lot of this, even if it's more mechanical or something like that. And then I can appropriately regurgitate it come test time and be successful, right? Yeah. And find good grades and all that good stuff by just memorizing knowledge. The LSAT's a skills-based test. I'd never seen games or anything like them before seeing this test. And to assume that you can master LR or LG in two to three months is just insane. It's like if you were to say, okay, like I should just be able to get in a car and drive without any driver's ed, or like I should be able to be Ray Allen by touching a basketball for two or three months. It's not going to happen, right? It's just, it takes time to develop. It takes time. And it takes time to get that feel for it. Often in the games, you would just feel, oh, there's the pressure point. This is the pressure point here, Mm -hmm. right? Or when when you look at five answer choice, you you just get a feel that like, oh, I think this is the one that might be right. And it's hard to explain why that is. I mean, the explanation has got to have something to do with the fact that you're just, you just have mastery over the underlying content that you've done so much of it. Just like how when you're driving, you just feel it. You're not really even thinking about driving that. I mean, assuming you know how to drive, you've been driving for a while. <laughs> Lots of assumptions yeah. there. But same with LR, same, like you read an argument, you just kind of, you're like, oh, I, I see the gap here. This, this is what they're, this is the <laughs> assumption that they've made and it's unwarranted and let's see what we can do with that in the answer choices. So much of it is just like a feel. I think probably a really concrete example for me was the word unless was like the bang of my existence when I first started studying. Yeah, the that's a great point. It just made absolutely no sense to me. But now, unless I just told myself like, that's just what you got to do. You just got to negate sufficiently and just keep repeating to myself, practice, practice. But now, unless actually has a feeling to it, it's different. Like I actually feel like I understand the word unless. It's not just a mechanical process anymore. And that took, well, that took many, many years. Yeah. I definitely understand that. I think it goes across sections too. It's like uh, just like understanding the structure of reading comp, for example, right? 
once you actually know where they're going to go when they start off with some background information and then someone who's probably been dead for like 300 years opinion on it, you know what's going to happen next, right? They're going to give you new information and a new hypothesis. And by the way, that new hypothesis is probably going to be the main point of the entire reading comp passage. So then you can focus on details, but that takes a long time to develop. I was talking to someone recently about this, a student who asked me if like I had looked at passages in 1 through 35 for reading comp was like, absolutely I did. Because the only way you can really build that sense of, I anticipate this word that's in quotes is going to be significant detail in the questions. The only way you can anticipate that is having seen it a bunch of times before in different various ways. The same thing with LR. It's like the first time I saw a circular argument, I, I feel like we're just doing geometry today with circles, but the first time you see it, if it's not apparently obvious, if it's actually a well-written stem, you definitely don't have the feel for it. But if you do it a couple times and you see it on a later practice test, you just kind of have this weird feeling that that's what you're looking at, even if you haven't pinpointed the word or concept. Oh, yeah, totally. A lot of these like repetitive flaws, like sufficiency, necessity, confusion, the oldest mistake in the book, right? They give you one of those in every single set or on average, one per section. But like, that's that's the kind of stuff you just see so much of it. You see it, you're not really processing it, comprehending it in the same way that you would in a blind review session or in a study group session where you're forced to fully explicate your reasoning. No, none of that is happening. You just feel it. You just, like you're reading it, you just feel like, oh, this is sufficient necessity confusion. I'm just gonna go for answer choice D, that's it. And then move on. It took like 40, 50 seconds. That's something that, can only happen with a lot of time studying and a lot of time resting. Yeah, so it can't be rushed. Yeah, for sure. And it took me like two years. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for LR, you said you started implementing a timing strategy. You just basically, even if you could, on average, get through a whole 35-minute section without having to skip every once in a while, you might get thrown off, you might get caught off guard with some weird question. So having that discipline of always, was it some like rule that you set for yourself? If certain conditions are met, I'm out of there. Or, or how did you? Yeah. So pretty much what happened was after that test performance in January that I wasn't happy with, I realized that I needed to be way more disciplined or else that could easily happen again. Like I needed to build in around one and around two because I didn't really have a round two before. So what I would do for the vast majority of LR questions are argument based. So if there was an argument question that either I didn't know was going uh -huh. on in the actual stimulus, yeah. or I didn't have at least a general shape or a prediction going into the answer choices, I was out of there. Because that's exactly how you end up eating a bunch of time. Like flaw questions, for example, if you don't know what the flaw is before you go looking for the answer choices, they've got you, right? There's a thousand different ways that they can make answer choices that are enticing enough, but not really, that you just sit there and you waffle and you spend three minutes on a question that's literally worth one point and is exactly the same <laughs> as the first acceptable situation question in yeah. logic games. So for me, it was like, okay, I need to put my ego aside a little bit on this. I have to get out of certain question types if I don't have a feel for what I'm looking for in the answer choices. And sometimes that's much more difficult because let's say a difficult resolve, reconcile, explain, you have no idea what you're looking for, but at least you know where the pressure point is. But if you don't understand where the pressure point is for something like resolve, reconcile, explain, or like at least have a general shape of what you're looking for, I would just skip because otherwise I would spend so much time 
going over every detail, especially in the answer choices, where the answer is actually in the stimulus. So it wasn't worth my time, ultimately, to sit and waffle between two or three answer choices. Yeah, no, it's the worst when you are uh, primed for the picking. When you don't understand the stimulus, the outside test writers have primed you. And the next thing that happens is that the wrong answers pounce because the wrong answers are designed to prey upon the misunderstanding, the typical misunderstandings that people have as they come out of the stimulus. The LSAT writers are just so good at predicting how people misread, misunderstand, misinterpret arguments and English, frankly. So they, they, have, they have drafts waiting for you. It's their job, right? Their job is to make sure that there is a normal distribution curve, and they're going to figure out all of the ways in which you can misread a few different statements and then play on those. And that's one of the things that between a 165 and a 170 and even those higher scores, you have to be able to kind of put yourself in their yeah. shoes as far as trap yeah, answer choices sure. go. What are they playing on the bad reasoning, for example, that would get someone to choose A instead of C? Once you can start doing that, that's where I think I started to consistently make that jump, where now I, I felt like I was actually in control of the sections instead of me just reacting all the time. Nice. Did you have like a very strict timing protocol for going through LR? Some people do, I don't know, 10 and 10, or some people do 15 and 15. Yeah. <laughs> as far as timing went, I pretty much would try and go 10 and 10, although that didn't always happen. Occasionally, they'll bury in a really difficult flaw question, like seven or eight. So maybe it's not exactly 10, 10. I would use it as a general gauge in my mind, but there wasn't necessarily like a number of minutes I needed to finish the section in. It was really the only way in which I could start trusting that skipping strategy is just by doing it a bunch of times, right? Right. Did you have a quota for how many you wanted to or you had to skip in the first round? Or if you didn't, you can maybe tell me about like just empirically what would happen, what the timer read when you got to the end of round one and how many questions would you have skipped? Right. So originally when I realized that like I needed to start skipping questions, I forced myself to skip at least three at a bare minimum. Then I would just kind of experiment with it from there. If there was 50-50 questions, those were automatic skips. I wouldn't fill them out. If there was just, I wanted to flag it for some reason, even though I thought I knew the answer, I would skip that. And I would just kind of do in different iterations, all these different skipping strategies. And eventually I found there wasn't a number I was necessarily looking for. What I was really looking for was I wanted to make sure that I had at least five to seven minutes-ish for round two to finish at maybe three or four questions. Because the second time around, you naturally are able to kind of jump back into that question more quickly because the stimulus is just shorter, right? It's not like reading comp. And so I think just having a fresh pair of eyes on it usually helps things kind of click into place, particularly if it's like an earlier question that might not necessarily have the highest difficulty rating, but it just doesn't really mesh with you specifically. So I just had to take different sections and iterations and kind of play it out and learn to trust that I would have enough time at the end. I would actually, towards the end of my studying, when I wanted to get really specific with LR, I would take my QuickTime player on my Mac and I would do a screen recording because not only then I had all the timing information with analytics, which was always awesome, but then I could see myself second guessing and I could more accurately get into my own shoes watching myself answer the questions. I hate listening to the sound of my own voice. I even more so hate watching myself do LR. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But it is really great because I would see this constantly in like the first 10 questions. I think it was just because, you know, I would do warm up beforehand, but you're still kind of getting into the groove of things that I would go back and second guess myself on answer choices I'd already crossed off. And I didn't know why I was doing that. But at the end of the section, that could account for like a minute or two that I could have spent on the hardest curve breaker at the end. And so for me, it was like, I just had to do LR in that fashion enough times that like, I could trust whatever the clock yeah. read with how many questions I had yeah. skipped. And then from there, I got really nitpicky about some underconfidence errors as well. Right, right. That's fantastic. Again, back in the prehistoric days of paper LSAT, I remember telling students to set up their iPhone to physically record the paper, <laughs> right? Now, analytics automatically tracks your timing data, which is great, but it doesn't do screen recording. So you might be able to look at your analytics report and see that question three is a two-star question. You got it right, but why did it take you two minutes and 47 seconds? So if you were screen recording, you can go back and you can see that, oh, you were just waffling like you picked the right answer already, but then your mouse went back to the stimulus because you were underconfident, you wanted to confirm something, right? You wanted to double, triple check answer choice D just to make sure you eliminated it correctly. And then that's how you pick up the fact that, oh, wait, no, 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 no. This is just time wasted. Got this question right, but it's underconfident. And that's terrible because that means I wasted like a minute and a half that I could have had on a harder question. That's fantastic advice. I really wish more people would record there because it's pretty i mean it's pretty easy to do a screen recording it is it is and it's definitely interesting viewing content the first few times to see yourself do something that you think you're so much better at even because i think scores hide a lot of things one thing that i learned by really underperforming on a real test is that your practice tests are just tools yeah they're not meaningless but the scores are certainly meaningless what you need to pull from those is like every question you got wrong, you really need to know why you got it wrong. And if there was anything that you were kind of uncertain about or like maybe you were like 60-40 on, you need to understand that too. The scores, and I always laugh at this when, you know, if you go on like Reddit, for example, people are like posting their practice test scores. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't understand it. This ultimately is this is else that's like any other job, you know, it's all about preparation, but then execution. And the preparation is a beast. Don't get me wrong. But the execution is no more easy. And so I came out of my 170 take and I knew it wasn't my best performance because I knew I wasn't perfect on logic games. I came to one paragraph in reading comp that I just could not understand. I had a low res idea of what it was, but man, the grammar was difficult. And I had a feeling like maybe I got there, maybe I didn't. But ultimately, how you perform that morning right? When you're connected with some random person um, on ProctorU <laughs> and you go through that whole experience is really what determines a lot of your law school application success and where you go and all those opportunities. I mean, it's an abstract process. You're filling in bubbles on a test and doing games, but it's really a lot of pressure at the same time to execute. And so the PTs should really just be always, as corny as it sounds, a learning opportunity, right? Where is your reasoning weak? What games do you need to brush up on? Is there a particularly things in like reading comp that give you difficulty? And that's where I wish I had a second set of eyes on a lot of the things I was doing. I decided that with working part-time and then also studying part of the time early on, when I probably should have gotten a tutor or just gone onto more like uh, group calls. I didn't because I think I had the same undergrad experience as a lot of people where it was like every time there was group work, I felt like I was 
taking on a lot of the burden that I didn't necessarily want to be. It's not always <laughs> even distribution. And that's not the case with Seven Sage. I remember jumping onto a group call and Daniel was on it. And one of his like, Daniel, can I ask JD? Can I ask JD? Yeah, he was on it. And it was the first time I had ever actually heard from him and hadn't just seen him post. And he gave like some great explanation to some logical reasoning question. At this time, I'm now working full time. I'm like, why haven't I been reaching out to people yeah. like that way, way more? Because I think I just always had the suspicion that if people are pre-law, they can't be helpful and nice. <laughs> um, but, and uh, it's the exact opposite case with Seven Sage. It's like, it's a weird thing to trust, but people like have your best interest at heart. And I actually, even if they're teaching you because they want to get better at the test, who cares? Like it's a win-win situation that it's not a zero-sum game. That's what I try to, try to tell people. Like it helps you to teach other people. It might benefit them too. Uh, you don't even have to care about that if you're selfish. I mean, you could just do it for the selfish reason yeah. that it forces you to clearly explain your thought process. So you have nowhere to hide. Whatever logical misconceptions, it's going to get aired out because you got to say it out. So you're going to hear that you don't sound right when you say it out. Um. <laughs> yes. Saying things out loud is one way in which you really get a feel for if you understand something. And so kind of when I realized like my schedule was going to be far more chaotic, what I did instead was when I was blind reviewing, I would end up writing out these long explanations. And a lot of the comment sections, just particularly what part of the reasoning I broke down on or what in the question gave me difficulty. And then I would leave it in the comments. And so one, people could call me out if they wanted to. And trust me, people have. And I think it's awesome. I mean, there's still people doing that today, which is <laughs> yeah. great because it means that it's hopefully beneficial to them as well. But it's also if you have to say something out loud or explain it to someone, or if you have to write it out, you really have to learn in a way that's just anti right, right, right? Like your brain doesn't just fill those gaps naturally. I was talking about logic games with rules where you might not catch that it's just an unless not instead of just an unless or something like that. You really have to be meticulous and concise with it. So yeah, I wish I would have had another set of eyes on some of that stuff, but I ended up just using the comment section to pretty much create a historical record of all the questions I'd had a little bit of difficulty with, and then also kind of showing people my reasoning and hopefully having them interact with it. So that's so much good stuff. Recording yourself, doing a screen recording to reveal the underconfidence gaps, utilizing the community, participating in the community to utilize the collective wisdom, forcing yourself to explicate your reasons either by doing the study groups or just by typing up your long line of reasoning under the lessons in the comment section. All of those are really great exercises to improve. And it only took me 18 months to yeah. get there. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's just like a, like a lot of things. I think studying was a lot of trial and error. When I first started doing it, I burned through a lot of PTs, which I ended up coming back to when I, I came back to like 20 months later. So they felt relatively fresh. But I think eventually you just get more and more honed in. And you also, if you're in this thing for the long haul and you want to do your best, it's going to take a while. So you have to find ways to also make your studying interesting and different than it was maybe a couple months ago. I think it's really good to just be interested in the subject. Like a lot of people are like, oh man, RC is so random, eclectic. I mean, it absolutely is. Yeah, that's kind of it, fun though. Yeah, exactly. And you can frame <laughs> it as, well, hey, you know, they don't make stuff up in RC. It's all adapted from real world academic content. So you're actually learning about facts of the world, real phenomenon and real theories to explain or real histories, real biographies. So you are expanding your you're expanding your knowledge of the world while studying right. this. And you have to do it anyway. So it's better if you just frame it as something fun. Yeah. Might as well be interested. Exactly.
I definitely agree with that. I think the LSAT actually, from a content perspective, is really interesting. It's not like a lot of standardized exams where there might have been actual courses that you took that prepared you specifically for this in undergrad or something like that, right? Versus the LSAT, you're getting like random questions about Saturn and salmon and dinosaurs. It really is testing reasoning. It's not testing content. Right. And so the content itself can actually get kind of fun. Not always. They seem to overplay the United Nations <laughs> and, and a few other concepts. But for the most part, it's actually just a lot of kind of interesting random stuff. And if you're naturally a curious person, the LSAT studying for it can actually be kind of fun because you learn a bunch of random stuff, which if you like things like Jeopardy, it plays to your favor. So. Yeah, well, now you're done with LSAT. Or if you're taking it again, don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not taking it again. So ultimately, I decided, so like a 170 was, it was within the test day penalty. So you say like your last five tests and like a minus three, I think it was averaging like a 173. So it was realistic. I just decided at that point, because there's been a couple of deans from like more prominent law schools who have said openly that like, if you retake a 170, we're really going to question your judgment, <laughs> which I think is fair, because unless you want to go maybe T3 or T4, a 170 is going to make you competitive pretty much That's right. most places. So I just figured I'm happy with the end result. It's better than I initially sought out for. It breaks that weird abstract barrier that people really care about. So I'm happy with it. And now, yeah, I'm just starting to teach students, which is fun. It's very different. It really highlights, based off my experience, there were certain things that came very naturally and certain things that didn't. And for some people, it's the exact inverse. Games is just very natural. Mm -hmm. And then, for example, reading comp might be more of a struggle. So it's been enjoyable. I couldn't quite get myself off of seven stage. <laughs> my girlfriend jokingly calls it my form of social media, which makes me feel ancient considering I'm only 23. But yeah, I'm usually lurking on the forum and trying to help people out. So well, we we certainly don't want you to leave ever. So don't ever leave us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I don't plan to apply for another few cycles really? at least because I'm hoping to yeah. So the way I see it is that I am a pretty normal person that doesn't have, I, I have some stories that are exceptionally interesting, but getting the work experience for me right now makes some sense. And also I want to like, I grew up in a family where I was the youngest of five kids. Traveling anywhere was impossible. <laughs> Just logistically, it was a nightmare. Um, so I'm hoping to like be a more well-rounded person going into law school, have some real world experiences. I think that no matter what field I end up in, if it's public interest, if it's corporate, whatever it is, I think finance will probably touch in it in some way. And so to have that experience now, because I'm in a financial development program with my job that I'm still taking classes and stuff like that. So for me, it's like after maybe two, three years, I'm positive law is something I'm very interested in. It's what I want to do. I've known that since I was little, as cheesy as it sounds. But I'm not also in a rush because originally I had that idea that I wanted to be KJD, right? Like just go straight through. And I think that was partially just because that's what my oldest brother did. And so I was like, why not try and replicate that? But now it's like, if I can make my resume more competitive, law schools aren't going anywhere. Not that I know of. So I'm definitely hoping to, yeah, just uh, take the next few years, build out my resume and hopefully learn a lot and come into the experience like is ready for 1L as someone can be, is, which I've heard is like not at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great plan. You're working full time right now, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, if you want to travel, I mean, definitely take some time off. 
from your job before law school to travel. That's exactly yeah, the plan. Yeah, no. yeah. Because I've, the last time I realized this today, because a friend of mine lives close to the Canadian border, actually, and he was like, hey, like, you should come to this concert in Montreal. I'm like, man, I haven't renewed my passport since I was five. Like I might, have to, I might have to get out. Yeah, yeah. Especially like borders are starting to reopen. I think Canada reopened its borders to America, or either have or soon will. And I think it's a good idea to do that before you start law school because I don't know if you've heard, but it, it is it's a pretty serious. Like once you start, it's a serious professional school. It's not like graduate school for liberal arts. It's it's actually like <laughs> no, this is like a professional school. This is the first step to being to prepping you for your career as a lawyer. So once you start law school, you're kind of on tracks. You're kind of on on rails, rather. You're kind of on rails. Some people do take a little bit of time off between their 1L, 2L, or 2L, 3L years, but most people will just start law school and then that's it. 1L goes to 2L. You have two summers to find jobs. The second summer is super important because that turns into the full-time offer. And then, you know, once you graduate, it's full-time. That's your career. So really take the time to have fun, to travel, right? Yeah. I mean, if my score is good for five years and my GPA is set in stone, then I figured I might as well kind of hopefully make myself more interesting just from the resume standpoint and yeah, kind of see the world a little bit, hopefully be a more well-rounded person. Absolutely. I think that'll come through in your application, in your personal statement. You might want to get your recommendation letters just so that you're not like... Yeah, actually, I've already... Okay. So one of them, I uh, so I think I briefly mentioned this, but... I worked for a real estate attorney and I actually helped her teach the introductory real estate course at Wisconsin and then also the real estate law course. And I just absolutely love the real estate law. Everyone kind of pegs me as going like the traditional corporate route where it's like M&A or securities or whatever comes kind of traditionally to mind. But there's a chance that like I just go property because I love <laughs> it. Um, and, and she... She's already said she's going to write me, you know, like the best letter of recommendation she can humanly write. And so that one's locked down. The weird one is where if I'm out of school for a little bit, then I probably need one for my employer. If my employer found out that I was going to law school, I don't know how happy they would all be about that. So that one will be a little bit more interesting to navigate. But yeah, I really want to spend time too chewing on kind of the narrative and stories I want to convey in my personal statements, and then also trying to get out to see some of these schools, right? So I live in Austin now, but historically, I've just been in the Midwest. I, I've visited the East Coast some, but not been out there for extended periods of time. I would like to see some of the schools out there, same on the West Coast. And so I have the ability to kind of work from wherever with the job I currently have. So I plan to hopefully get to sit in some classes and tour some schools and really get precise about where I want to go. Because ultimately, it's a really big decision, right? Yeah. You hopefully can be confident going in because that first year is I think almost everyone across the board, no matter what school they go to, will tell you it's like just brutal. Yeah. Just absolutely. 1L is just a real tough experience. Making sure that it's the right fit for you. Law school in general is what you absolutely want. Those are things I don't want to necessarily rush. Hopefully the letter of recommendation stuff, I get tightened up, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have the opportunity to work remote and you're young and you're not tied down to a specific place... It is quite the experience to live in different places across the country or even internationally, assuming time zones work out and just work and get to experience what it's like to live in different places. You'll find out what you like. You'll find out a lot about yourself. I think that's for sure true. I think the most I ever learned about myself was like 
I was six or seven hours away from home. So in retrospect, it doesn't seem like that long, but it was really my first experience where I knew absolutely no one. And you just learn a ton from those experiences. And I think that's one of the great things about, yeah, just being in like different environments and like constantly trying to push yourself because you see the way you react and just very different sets of circumstances. Absolutely. Well, John, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for talking to me and sharing your story. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, JY. And like I've said on the forum, you are my hero. There's no way that any of this could have been possible without you and Seven Sage. And particularly, I think that finding that virus launch game <laughs> video really like changed the entire trajectory. Well, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. <laughs> of everything. So. That is very kind of you. <laughs> if students want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Is it just on the forums? Yeah. So they can either, yeah, just like direct message me on the forums. So again, I go by Burt Reynolds on it. They can also email me because I'm doing some tutoring now and have some capacity. My email is burtreynoldselsat at gmail.com. <laughs> There's no capitals in that. I figured I might as well just stay true to the character I've created <laughs> online <laughs> because I feel like I'm, it's more recognizable now than just another John. So. <laughs> All right. But yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll still be around for a while. So once I get to school, who knows? But <laughs> well, I'll include all that in the show notes. Thanks again, John. Yeah. Thanks so much, JY. Take care. Hi, everyone. It's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you're prepping for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevensage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.